Hello, you're listening to Renaissance Man, a podcast featuring my father, Philip Brunel, as he talks about the world of music. Here we are, coming up on Labor Day, which means that it's the start of not one, but sort of two seasons, right? So there is the, the church season, which kind of follows back to school and starts up. Uh, and then there's the vocal season. And um, when you think about um, Plymouth, this is, what number is this in terms of fall season kickoff? For me? Yeah. 54. 54. Mm-hmm. 54 years of, of kicking things off. Um, so you've been choir master and organist here for at Plymouth. We're at Plymouth Church for 54 years. Um, well, it will be the start of the 54th. 54. Okay. It, 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 when you walk into a new season here, um, compare and contrast that with your first couple of, of seasons as a new organist and choir master. What, what do you know now that, that you sort of wish you had known then? Well, when I arrived, I came in the summertime. And uh, at that time, I just wanted to get a sense, looking at the bulletins, what kind of repertoire they had been doing in those years before I showed up. And one of the things I discovered was that they pretty much, if they sang a certain piece on the first Sunday in January, they repeated that every year on the first Sunday in January or a piece that was done in March or May. So one of the things I knew I wanted to do was to change that Mm -hmm. because if you are always singing the same anthems, that means your sight reading is not that good because you're not having to sight read. You're just repeating what you already knew. So one of the things I started to do from the very beginning was to find music that would be a challenge to people. I remember the very first year we did a piece called Antiphon by Benjamin Britten, which was uh, a stretch for some of the choir to At that do. time. But it was, yeah, but it was wonderful. So I guess what I've learned is that people love challenges in choral music, and they loved what they were doing. They just need to make sure they have enough time so that they can learn it and perform it well so that they are proud of what they're doing. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, I, I come from the, the business world, and and I look at the job of uh, uh, an organist and a choirmaster, and I guess the, the, the question is, how do you measure success? You know, you're entering your 54th season. You've, when you look back at last year's church season, how would you, is there a way of, of evaluating um your performance as a choir master or organist or, or for the entire, uh, you know, there's a, there's youth choirs, there's a handbell choir, there are, you know, there are other, other groups, other arts things. How do you go about evaluating, um, return on investment or key performance indicators? <laughs> oh, these are expressions that are not part of my vocabulary. Right, right. But I would just say that you have a feeling that you know 
things have gone well, uh, first of all, that your choir members all return? Yeah. That would be one thing. Yeah, they like singing with They you. like singing. They like the repertoire. You find it also from just the comments that you get from people in the congregation. So how do you organize your thoughts? Uh, for the church choir, I've already chosen the music through June of 23. Uh, each Sunday, the choir sings two anthems, and my goal, roughly, my goal is to have the repertoire in sort, sort of thirds. One-third of the music will be anthems they sang the previous season. It would be good to repeat. One-third repertoire that's in the library, but we haven't sung it for at least a year and probably for many years before. And one-third new music that they've never sung before. Now, I don't keep it to strict one-third of these things, but pretty much we do, so that there's a lot of repertoire. And, of course, I also, having chosen the repertoire, if there's some reason because of a certain celebration on a Sunday, I need to make a change, of course, we can make a change in the repertoire. If one of the ministers has a special request or there's a right. theme that needs to be done. So, yeah, it's it's all set. And I have found that the choir members love knowing in advance what they're going to sing, not just the next week, but months. And if they also know that they're going to be away traveling, they will let me know. Because what you don't need is <clears throat> to plan a certain anthem and then discover that that Sunday you have no sopranos. They're all visiting some relatives right. and aren't there. Okay, so that's the the choir and the organ. What about the rest of the musical staff? Because there's two services and you've got, you know, uh, handbells and other things. How do you help those forces uh, get prepared for another season? Because ultimately the buck stops with you, right, when it comes to music at Plymouth Church. So, right. and, and so there are other people that you don't monitor directly, but, you know, they show up in, in different services and things like that. So how do you... How do you prep that side of the job? Well, of course, this particular season coming up has been uh, one we've looked forward to, but also a challenge because of what's happened the last two years with COVID, mm. with not being able to be on site here, and now we can be on site. So bringing people back together to sing, to play, is... Uh, going to be an interesting challenge, one that we look forward to. But I have Marie Schultz, who works uh, not only in conducting the young youth choirs, but also having her help coordinate those choirs. And when are they going to rehearse? And then when are they going to sing in a service? She also coordinates what happens at the nine o'clock service. Mm -hmm. And so having her doing that work helps me figure out what it is we're going to have in terms of each Sunday. And we also have this year uh, the various programs. We're going to try something new 
on Wednesday nights with the with the various groups that Maria has got a plan that we're going to stretch it out during the year and we're going to do different things at different spots in the year and not have everything rehearse every week all the time. So we'll see what happens. And uh, the obviously the chapel singers will rehearse during the year and the Plymouth adult choir will, of course, do the same. So there will be some things that are consistent, but other things that we're going to try some new, just because we want to build up the attendance again. And with people not having been here for two years, uh, it's sort of bringing habits back. Yeah, so it's important to kind of reaffirm, but also shake some things up. Absolutely. All right. Um, Then the other thing that we're going to do uh, that we haven't done I am going to start this year a a music series once a month that we will have on Sunday afternoons to just uh, bring some different groups together. So, for instance, in October, uh, Clara Osowski, who is a wonderful singer, is going to do a recital that features a piece that Plymouth Church commissioned from Jonathan Dove, terrific group of songs. And she's going to do that along with some other music in November for Twin Cities piano. Pianists are going to do uh, the first book of well-tempered clavier of Bach. Um, everybody knows the very first one. Da, da, dee, doo, dee, doo, 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 doo. Everybody knows that one. But there's another... You know, you have to have these other 24. So these four pianists are going to play this. It is the 300th anniversary this year of when they were composed. And then in, that will be November. And in December, Maria Jetty and uh, Sonia Thompson are doing a, a little French Christmas program on the Sunday before Christmas. And then we go on from there in the new year with some other programs. So... So some some old traditional favorites and some good habits and some entirely new approaches to, to programming at Plymouth Church. Yep, absolutely. So that will be happening, and that's a new thing. But we felt this is a good time to do it. They will be free programs, and we'll do one a month. And just with a variety of music, I think it will it will entice a variety of audiences. Well, let's... Let's pivot over to vocal essence, um, but I want to back up a couple of months. You know, our last conversation here in Renaissance Man was with everyone's favorite, Stuart Copeland. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I had COVID, so my brother Chris stepped in and you guys had a great chat with Stuart um, about his process. But remind us, so May of 2022 was the Midwest premiere of Satan's Fall, written by Stuart Copeland. But when had you originally engaged him? Uh, I had spoken with him about a, a year and a half earlier. So the timeline from kind of original outreach with Stuart to a live performance was roughly 18 months. 18 months to two years. Uh-huh. Something like that. Okay. How would you evaluate that entire experience? I mean, what... What was exciting about it? Was there was there anything you imagined could have been improved in that process? Well, 
it was a, well it was exciting because we had Stuart here and he's a great musician so it was, that part was wonderful i would say that the challenge is you've got uh, these words uh that are very i don't know how to describe uh, the text of Milton is very flowery. And so I think it was frustrating for the audience to follow. But we knew that was going to happen and just hoped everybody would go for it because of the wonderful music and, and, and the drama of what he had created. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the 2022-2023 season of vocal lessons which is the it's the 54th 54th season, season. right uh, and you're kicking off the season um with a gala we are indeed right and, and you do a vocal lessons does a gala every every year every year well it's been every other year right now because of covid okay and um what's your goal what will constitute success well, I know we've got a dollar figure, which I don't have in front of me, but mm -hmm. that uh, we want to raise because these monies all go to help the programs that we are doing in the schools, uh, the programs in the community. Um, what, so you've been putting on fundraisers for over 50 years. What's the biggest challenge for an arts organization like Vocal Lessons? You know, the main focus is performing, but you got to raise money and you're putting together a gala. What's the what's the biggest challenge in assembling a fundraising gala? And what advice would you have for, you know, others who are in a similar boat? Well, the biggest challenge is just to have people in the seats that night. And the fact is that in today's world, there are still people who don't want to come together because they're concerned about their health. And so you have to figure, okay, uh, we wish you'd come, but if you can't come for whatever reason, or you're out of town at a wedding that weekend, we hope that you will still support what we're doing. So trying to find ways that those who are there will support, but that those who aren't there will also support the work and the mission of Ocalescence. Right. And I have to assume... A big part of creating a successful fundraising event is to make the environment, the setting, one that uh, encourages eliciting the pocketbook and getting out the checkbook and and feeling, you know, excited to 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 donate in the moment. Absolutely, that's part of it. We will have, of course, singers there. We have some uh, part of the evening in which the audience sings, because I just believe everybody needs to be up involved singing. So we've got some wonderfully, I think, kind of fun ways to do that that aren't the typical things. But I'm not going to give it away. Oh, no, no, no. And then October comes around. You're going to be at uh, Bethel University in Benson Hall, uh, a program called the Mendelssohn's. Uh, and I'm assuming you mean Felix and Fanny <clears throat> Mendelssohn. What's the impetus there? Why <clears throat> focus on Felix and Fanny? Well, a couple of things. First of all, 
the Mend the music of Felix Mendelssohn is well known. People know either his symphonies or they know some of his oratorios like Elijah. Uh, or St. Paul, uh, they also would know just the sound of that music. But I think very few people realize that his sister, who was a year older, Fanny Mendelssohn, was equally a wonderful composer. But given the 1840s, 1830s, mm. uh, a woman composer? Nah, we're not going to give that. That, that couldn't possibly yeah. be. And so, in fact, a lot of Fanny's music was written, and she used Felix's name because she knew then it would get out there. And But we now realize, years later, that indeed Felix didn't write all of that. Fanny wrote a lot of it. And so she was his equal as a composer, but people didn't know that. And also Felix, when he would compose something, before it was out in the public, he would take it to Fanny and say, what do you think? Interesting. Yeah. So well, I just wanted to celebrate her right. as much as him. So the first half of the program is all Fanny, mm. and the second half is Felix. Huh. Interesting. And I understand there's that an honor choir. What, what does that mean? Well, an honor choir of high school kids. Uh, what we've done, uh, Philip Schultz has contacted four different schools mm. that have really wonderful choirs and found the sort of top singers in each of those schools to come together and also be part of the concert uh, with our singers of this age group to sing music of Mendelssohn, which I'm sure for all of them is the first time they ever sang any Mendelssohn. Yeah. So it does, it helps, first of all, for them to realize this important composer. But at the same time, it also helps the audience to realize that we're trying to uh, make sure that young people as they're learning the music of today, whether it's pop music or classical, but they're also finding out about some composer of the past. Right. Uh, Mendelssohn will start off, and we're delighted. And of course, there'll be orchestra as well. And <clears throat> my idea of Fanny's part of the program was to start with one voice singing, then go to three voices, then go to more, and then add everybody and add orchestra so that you get a sense that she worked in a lot of different uh, feelings about music at, as she was writing. And that's awesome. That's great. And then in uh, November of this year, we've got the Montserrat Boy Choir. And they, they will be appearing at the Basilica of St. Mary in Minneapolis on Friday, November 11th. Um, well, you were once a boy soprano and you've got a, a grandson who sang in the Minnesota boy choir. What do you, I, I, what do you imagine that there's a bunch of boys that are coming from um, Spain, the Benedictine Abbey of St. Santa Maria. They're going to arrive in Minnesota in early November. What are they going to experience? What are we going to experience? Well, I have been trying for about seven years to get this choir here oh. and <clears throat> trying to figure out. I didn't want to fly them for one concert. That's crazy right. and too expensive. Yeah. So I wanted to work it 
in with the uh, Abbey up at St. John's mm. because they also, <clears throat> being a Benedictine uh, Abbey, uh, would be interested in having this boy choir there. And I have to tell you, there's a lot of boy choirs around the world. Yeah. This boy choir is like number one. Mm. They are so amazing. And when you hear them, you go like, oh, there are boy choirs, and then there are boy choirs. This group is really fantastic. 40 young boys, uh, ages, you know, grade school through high school. Yeah. And uh, so I've been trying and trying to get this to happen, and then COVID came along, right. and we had to wait. But now we have the Montserrat Choir coming. They, uh, Montserrat is a... Um, mountain outside of Barcelona. Mm. I've been there. I've heard the boys. And I mean, I just knew one of the things we've tried at Vocal Essence each year is to have a guest choir at some point in right. the season. Yeah. And so this year to have this boy choir, and I realize that many people haven't heard them before, but trust me, you don't want to miss hearing the Montserrat boys. They are Excellent. It's just, it's a thrill for me that we finally have made it happen. Oh, that'll be great. And then we roll into uh, Welcome Christmas, the annual Welcome Christmas concert, uh, December 10th and 11th. And uh, as I understand, Northrop is the, the home. It, are we doing it in a few other places? Northrop for the first time. It's the first time that we have been to Northrop. And the reason is one thing that we have wished could happen and it never has been possible before, could we do a welcome Christmas in which all the choirs that are part of vocal lessons could appear on the same concert? We would have the ensemble singers, the chorus, the, the singers of this age, and the choirs that are part of our Vintage Voices program. Mm, yeah. How could we do that? The problem has been you can't do it in a church. There's not enough space. Mm. Um, you might be have enough space to get them all up there, but then how do you do offstage, backstage, whatever right. you want to call it? Not possible. So we've thought, what about Northrop? Northrop is huge. It's yeah. wonderful space. Now that they have re they've renovated the space beautifully and they also have renovated the wonderful pipe organ that they have there. So we'd want to use the organ with this. We will have a brass ensemble and percussion. And so all of our choirs can perform, sometimes all of them together, and then other times individual pieces that will be uh, one group or another some of it very familiar to the audience. And so we're going to have some singing with the audience joining in. It's going to be really a glorious opportunity for people to celebrate Christmas in this space with all of these wonderful choirs singing. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, Northrop at the University of Minnesota is kind of a milestone. What was the first time you performed in Northrop touring at the University of Minnesota? Well, it would have been in my first year when I went there in the fall of 61, and uh, I was in the uh, wind ensemble, the concert wind ensemble there, and we did concerts there. And it was the first time you played the organ. 
in Northrop. That would have been the second year I was at the university, and I was the youngest member of what was then called the Minneapolis Symphony. Yeah. And uh, there were there was a piece that involved organ with the orchestra. Yeah. So then I had to be down in the pit, the orchestra pit, yeah. and it, the instrument was down there. The, the thing I always will remember is... If you've been in Northrop, you know it's a beautiful, big space. It now seats just a little under 3,000 people. Yeah. And, but the pipes for the organ, and it's a huge pipe organ, the pipes are all up in the ceiling. Mm. So when you are sitting down in the orchestra pit and you're going to play, you have to remember that you play a chord, your hands strike the chord, and then about a half second later, the sound comes. Yeah. <laughs> so you you cannot listen to what you're doing because otherwise you'll just get slower waiting to hear what it is your fingers have just played. Right. And so the scary thing with an orchestra was that you had to anticipate each chord five and a half second. <laughs> Uh, if it was going to match up with what the orchestra was doing. Right. And so I can still remember watching that very first one and Skorvachevsky raising his arm. And, and of course, as his arm came down, that's when the orchestra played. But I had to play before his arm came down because then it matched up with the orchestra. So it's an interesting challenge. It was, oh, yes, that when you play... Don't be listening because, especially if you're playing something like the Vidor Toccata, right. you know, those, th you will, you will have played about that much before you hear it. Yeah. So you don't, you don't listen. You just go. Yeah. Huh. Well, that'll, that'll be festive and exciting and, and it sounds like a big, a big event. It will be a big event. And we're going to. And that's why we're going to do it both on a Saturday evening and a Sunday afternoon for folks. But I would just, it will, it will make Christmas for everyone who's there. Awesome. Uh, and then we roll into 2023 and February and we get into uh, witness. And how many years of witness will we arrive at in February of 23? This will be, uh, I think, the 32nd or 33rd year of Witness. And I began that program really as an idea of how could we learn and celebrate the music of African-American composers. People knew that there were spirituals and jazz, but they certainly didn't know all of the choral music that was out there. Right. And they certainly didn't know who all these composers were. And I thought, let's celebrate these. Let's celebrate these composers. And this year, uh, the chorus and our singers of this age will be part of it, along with a fellow named Joe Davis. Yeah, what's his, what's his story? Well, Joe Davis is uh, he's a speaker, he's a writer, he uh, has a group called the New Renaissance, which is uh, good uh, name. Yeah, it is a good name. It, yeah. they, it's a kind of a multimedia production company uh, that does 
all kinds of things. So they're an amazing group, and I think they will just thrill the audience as they work and perform with our singers here. Yeah, and and as I understand, traditionally with the Witness program, it's not just the concert. It's also a month long. It's a month long engagement with educators with mm. schools what is the impact in terms of like the number of school uh students that that this witness program is going to engage with well first of all it isn't a month it's all year mm. because i don't believe in having black history month mm. as far as i'm concerned it's black history year mm. and we can do a lot of things so we have a group of what we call witness school artists mm. that go out into many schools to help people uh, understand the legacy of what African-American music has been. And so these people begin in September mm. and go all the way through May performing. And so we are able to reach uh, many schools during the year. But then in February, attached to this concert with Joe Davis. Uh, we do a young people's program at Orchestra Hall. Mm. And so we reach thousands of young people. And the great thing, if there's a good thing about COVID, the one good thing was that we had, because we had to be creative, we had to make it all happen remotely. Right. And because of that, we've made the school program statewide. Yeah. So That's now great. kids all over Minnesota can hear our program, which we couldn't do before, but that's something we now have, and it's something we will continue. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Well, that's February. And then we roll into April, and uh, there's a program called Change Sings at the Capri Theater. And, and this kind of sounds like a bit of a newer approach to programming, and Kind of not a typical, you know, stand and stand and deliver songs maybe you've heard before. Um, you've got visual art and spoken word and movement and singers of this age and guest artists and co-creation. Um, when I look at the history of, of vocal essence, it's evolved and grown. And then, you know, programs like Witness came to fruition. What's happening here with Change Sings? And what's the intent? Well, the intent here involves our youth choir, singers of this age. And singers of this age, S-O-T-A, the last four letters of Minnesota, uh, is a name that these young people, six years ago when we began this group, uh, we asked them to name themselves. And that's where S-O-T-A came from, vocal essence singers of this age. And over the years, of course, then some students graduate. So it keeps evolving. It's not the same people that it was six years ago. Right. And the whole idea with this is for them to create during the course of a year uh, a theme they're using uh, words of Amanda Gorman, who, of course, read her poem at President Biden's inaugural. And so they're using her words uh, to see themselves and us as change makers. And so this is a theme that as they begin their rehearsals and start 
actually this coming week as they begin. This is a theme that they're going to figure out and they will create the music. They will create the texts. Oh, they might use some of Amanda Gorman's. And so they will work through this and they'll have guests who come in to help challenge them and help them create what they're going to do. So this is a program I can't tell you right now what exactly they will do because it will evolve itself until we get to April when they are at the Capri Theater. Oh, that'll be awesome. Yep. So, so be, something entirely new and something entirely fresh. We did it last year, and so this will be the second year of doing such a kind of program. Cool. That's great. And then finally, uh, in May of 23, uh, Singing the World Away. Uh, and as I understand it, all of the choirs again kind of coming back together. Uh, you have a performer name. Is it? Is it? Maura. Maura. Maura Smiley. Right. And who is she? Well, she is an amazing woman who lives out in Vermont. Mm. And she uh, she's a person who kind of likes to mix classical music with what you might want to call street singing. And she... Give us an example of street singing. Oh, street singing would be you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you say to someone, hey, join me. Let's just uh, create a melody together. And so it would be like folk songs, but brand new. And so she's a, a woman who has a marvelous way of just inviting audiences to, you know, they might say, oh, I can't, I can't just create on the spot. And she'd go, oh, yes, you can. Mm. And Maura would help you just do that kind of thing. And she's, uh, people, when they are with Maura, they are mesmerized by how exciting it is to have a, a chance to create something on the spot. And she's so affirming and so wonderful. I know that even though people might not know who she is, she's known more, I would say, by choral directors who know of her work than the general population. But my hope is that people will show up because they'll want to find out what this woman can do. And then in addition, the ensemble singers are going to do a set of music of a number of composers that I feel we need to hear more from uh, composers from Haiti and Denmark and Mexico uh, that have wonderful choral music that hasn't been heard at all here in the Twin Cities, and they're going to bring that. So we'll have that first, and then Maura will come, and we just kind of get get everybody creating at the same time. So it will be a, a really great way to uh, uh, make the season come to the end, and that's why we decided it should be called Singing the World Awake, which is our theme for the whole year. That sounds awesome. So... <clears throat> Thinking about all of this effort, mm -hmm. thinking about um, this entire season, how long does it take to get a season of this scope, of this size? How long does it take to get it organized and, and getting venues booked? And I'm assuming music has to get ordered and musicians booked and all of that. Talk to me about like, when did you start planning this and, and what, was, what was the effort to get us to launching here in a couple of weeks? It began, I would say, about three years ago. Really? Mm -hmm. 
And then starting to put the ideas together. And then Philip Schultz and I began thinking about, okay, we can't do everything. We have to focus it in. How can we make this work? So we narrowed it down a bit into these concerts, what we wanted. Then, of course, one of the big challenges is finding venues. Since we don't own our own performing space, right. we must use spaces that are out there that work with singing. And these spaces, let's say Orchestra Hall, which we love to perform in, but we can't use it until the orchestra decides what dates they're going to use it. Right. And then we find out what's left. Ordway is the same way. So right. the program that we're doing with more, we had to wait till they've decided what they are going to have. So that's a really big challenge for us. And then, of course, just finding... Um, the repertoire that fits each of those places and that also works with a theme that we're going to have. And so it's there's a lot that has to happen. So you begin with just a kernel of thought about how it's going to be, and then you begin putting those pieces of the puzzle together. And I would say a lot of it happens in the last uh say, year and a half. But you also realize that because of COVID, a lot of things just had to wait because we just didn't know when we were going to be all coming back together. And so that became another challenge as we start looking at the, at the season that we've now approached. Well, I guess it's time for you to get back to work. It is. Well, there you have it. The 54th season of Vocalescence has already kicked off, and Philip Brunel will mark his 54th year uh, at the bench of the organ at Plymouth Congregational Church in Minneapolis uh, this coming Sunday, September 12th. The old man keeps himself plenty busy. A Renaissance man will be coming back shortly. Our next episode is going to be focused on the state of the state in the world of choral music. So we'll be recording that in a couple of weeks and we'll get that out to you shortly. Thanks for listening.